rebels and troublemakers to stand out Marginalized with voices making us so proud For identity in the industry, we all shout So many women empowered making their own So Cheryl, do you prefer watching content that reflects stories and people that you can relate to? Maybe look like you? What the fuck you think? Yup. Oh, that's so funny that you would say that. Let me tell you, research has shown yet again that that's the case for most people, to no one's surprise ever. <laughs> and there are also studies, because you know me in studies, proving that diverse representation translates to better performance of TV and film, and that, of course, impacts the bottom line, the moolah. Uh, yet we're not seeing the uptick in representation that you'd expect. <coughs> Backlash. Uh, and that's the paradox of diversity. Yes. So let's get into why that is. Influence in the mass, being on spotlight to the dark. No longer do they start anywhere. See a mark. Face and fear and hate. Start with hey. This is the Women of Color Unite podcast, a bi-weekly podcast about navigating the entertainment industry as a woman of color. I'm Cheryl L. Bedford, founder of Women of Color Unite, uh, the nonprofit organization and the creator of the JTC list. And my name is Manonda Reaper. I'm the vice president of Women of Color Unite. And we're so happy that you're joining us for this episode of the Women of Color Unite podcast. Okay, so let's talk about that paradox of diversity in Hollywood. So in talking about the paradox of diversity in Hollywood, a recent study by Samba TV proved that more on-screen representation usually increases viewership among diverse households. And interestingly, according to another recent study by UCLA, ratings and social media engagement peaked for TV shows with at least 31% minorities on screen, even for white audiences. So it's not like white folks don't watch that stuff at all either. Oh, my no. You know, you speak in my love language. I love stats. Okay, so for those who don't know, the JTC list, again, is named after my mother, Joan Teresa Curtis. My mother was not only an activist, my mama was a statistician. So I grew up with my mother always saying, Cheryl, break things down to lowest common denominator. Uh, because you don't know what's in the hearts and minds of why people don't even try. But what that lets them know is you know. Today we would say... Gaslighting, right? So it was a way not to be gaslit, not to have people say, well, that's not my experience. And in my experience and my black friends, like, uh, 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 fuck your feelings, fuck mine too. Statistical analysis and context is everything. All right. So let's get, let's get into some more of these stats, shall we? All right. So, to despite the great performance of these TV shows, Black leads in TV overall still make up only 14%. That is one four. 14%. And while Latinx people make up almost 20% of the U.S. population, Samba TV says, and I quote, they are only 10% of the leads. The Annenberg Inclusion Reports numbers for film are even worse. Just 5% of them are leads in movies. For AAPI folks, the vast majority of them are, wait for it, Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, I know that sounds like a really weird joke, but out of the 1,300 films between 2007 and 2019, only 44 starred in AAPI lead, and 14 of them were The Rock. I mean, he fine as fuck, but... Mm. It's, uh, 
yeah, we love The Rock, but there need to be more of everyone there. It's uh, it's true. But before we get into the current state of representation on screen, let's quickly touch on our last episode where we talked about how uh, diversity departments at the studios and production companies are failing marginalized filmmakers because that ties into today's topic. Karen Martin, a member of Women of Color Unite, who's a composer and also coincidentally a Black woman, sent in the following note to our email. And I quote her, DEI departments remind me of university hiring. When a Black professor is hired in the music department, it is usually for the ethnomusicology department, as if to say, as Black people, that is all we can do. I come up against this time and time again in the industry as a Black woman who is a composer. Not a Black composer, not a woman composer, but a composer. So I am relegated to that side of the fence. Until the white film industry changes their perceptions of us as creatives, things are not going to change. So we run into this all the time, everywhere. Uh, first of all, Karen, uh, thank you so much for sharing this with us. <sighs> Imagine that amount of talent that gets lost and pushed to the margins. Exactly. So let's dive into the current state of representation on screen, shall we? So we're going to be talking lots and lots of numbers here. Uh, every number and study we mention uh, during this episode is going to be linked in the show notes. So what do we mean when we talk about underrepresentation and what would we categorize as proper representation? I think... <laughs> Content is obviously woefully lacking actual prop, quote unquote, proper representation. I think when people use that term, they're really talking about making the content look the way the world looks. People of color, just in general, make up approximately 40% of the U.S. population. Actually, I think it's slightly higher than that. Uh, so one would think that content, even if it has a white gaze, meaning that the main characters are white, you know, the story, whatever it is, that at least the rest of it would look like the rest of the world, right? What is proper representation within the context? And that's the thing about reading stats and about being a statistician is that it means nothing without context. So people could go around and say, well, I'll just check a box. Meaning that people with disability, invisible or visible, make up 25% of the American population. Well, I'm just going to do that, right? Okay. But what mm -hmm. about telling those stories? What about changing the narrative? of what that looks like. What about actually hiring people with disabilities, play people with disabilities? Because there's been a shit ton of people without disabilities playing people with disabilities. So it's not just about the proper representation. It is about what type of representation and about the fact of correcting the last 100 years where pretty much most of the content has been through the white male and having seen all of their stories and this idea of so much empathy mm. 
that we have been conditioned to have for white people and the lack thereof of anybody who isn't white. Here's the best part about having gone to film school. You remember I was at NYU from 1984 to 88. So one of the classes that we had had to do with the fact of what happened right after the civil rights movement, women's movement and war in Vietnam. That's when you tended to see shows like Happy Days and and Laverne and Shirley, right? And it was Mm. this idea of a throwback to a simpler Mm. time. What is a simpler fucking time? Well, we had no goddamn rights. Then, haha, now let's also look at the 70s and the 80s, where you had most shows that had Black people were comedies, like Dallas, Dynasty, Falcon Crest, all of those white people. So the idea was that Black people were having fun being lower middle class or poor, you know, good times, what's happening, those types of shows. But it was so goddamn awful being rich and white. And that shit was done on purpose. The idea of breaking down these things and what was happening in the world and the backlash to diversity, because there's always a backlash and how it happens in media and how it begins to affect people. So when we talk about proper representation, you can't just talk about making it look the way the world looks. Like, we got to fix some shit. And it's up to Hollywood yes, yes. to undo because all the shit that they did. Within film theory, it's also very well understood that film and TV are, you know, quote unquote, our window into the world. We learn through film. And so it teaches people to empathize with people that they may or may not otherwise interact with, uh, you know, in their immediate environment. And so you already said it, the harm that Hollywood has done by portraying Black folks the way that they have historically, but also, for instance, Muslims since uh, 2001, um, and all of these marginalized groups, the way that they've been portrayed, the the damage is really, really considerable. And so I'm curious because it's it's so interesting that you bring up um the the comedies and how the black family was the the poor middle class, uh poor or middle class, and then you had the rich white folks. And Taika Waititi very recently in his keynote speech at the Hollywood Reporters Raising Our Voices event, he brought up that, you know, um Obviously, tokenization is a bad thing. So uh, that's when they insert a very, in a very artificial way, people of color in scenes that are in shows or stories that would not normally have people of color there. For instance, Succession, which was his um, example. But then that still almost 100% relates to what you were just saying is like, oh, look at these rich white people. We're still in the same spot exactly. We, we are. How many black dramas? There, there's, a, there's a couple. A couple. And there are some with rich people, but that the way they come to their money is often a little bit questionable. Yes. Y- you know? Yeah, I mean, you have the godfather of Harlem. You have... Right. I'm actually trying to think of some more. That was the one that popped into my head. So, but here's the thing. As we sit here and we're, we're trying to actually think of them. And someone actually said, if you can name them all, there's a problem. 
So if we sat here, it would take us all goddamn day mm. to sit here and go through every white drama, right? Like we would be here all goddamn day. And here we are having problems naming them. And, and I'm sure people who, you know, watch more streamers or whatever could, or film critics could run through that. But they would get to a point where they would hit an end, right? And it would come pretty quickly. If you can name them all, that's a problem. Latinx shows, indigenous shows, uh, any with LGBTQIA+, whatever. Cause, and I really say that we could probably sit here and name every last single one that I just mentioned. Every category. Mm-hmm. Mm. If you can name them all, that's yeah, the, a problem. If you can name the black actors. The point actors, is, is that there's too few. Yes. Yes. And, and so until we have, and let us not even begin to talk about the fact that some of them aren't even made by people who look like who they're trying to represent. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So many of these TV shows are still written by majority white writers rooms who don't actually interact much with black or whatever other, um, you know, marginalized community they're dealing with. Yeah. Let's pick on Taylor Sheridan for a second, because, you know, his interview where he's like, I'm going to write everything. And then taking credit for the reauthorization regarding indigenous women. But but you mm-hmm. you got no indigenous writers. And you're talking about Montana. And you're talking about cowboys. And you're not even actually giving like historical context to cowboys. There's a statistic that said that at one point, 25% of cowboys were black cowboys. And you're talking about these, all of these territories. And he's talking about this large um uh, ranch that he has. Where'd that ranch come from? Whose land was it taken from? Who who originally was on that land? But he's writing about Native American and indigenous people within Montana. I say that to say that there is this arrogance that white people, because the focus has been through them, can talk, write, direct, produce, light, blah, blah, make, make up hair, mm, all of that, mm. that they know how to do all that. When it's the opposite that is true mm-hmm. because for us to live, exist, um, not get shot by a cop, uh, whatever it is, right. Cause we get followed around in stores and, you know, and, and all of the grace that I mentioned that has been given to uphold this white, within this white supremacist system. I know, I need to know everything about you. You don't need to know a goddamn thing about me to live and exist. So what makes you Mm -hmm. think that you can write about something? And let me also say history, history is different depending upon who the storyteller is. Right. History is history is people will be like, no, history is history. No, he can talk. Somebody can talk about the civil rights movement, but because remember this happened before I was born born when my grandparents gave up their house that night that my entire family was wondering what was happening to my uncles all of that that my mother carried in her dna so this idea that everybody can tell our stories who whomever that story belongs to that white people can just tell it and tell it or somebody like taylor sheridan can do a little bit of history or some research or whatever, as opposed to people whose ancestors lived it. 
that, that's a fucking arrogance. Within that article, Taylor Sheridan has greenlit um, a story about Bass Reeves. Now, here's the thing. Because I've been in Hollywood 30 years, there have been so many Black people who have tried to do a story about Bass Reeves. I have read more scripts, had meetings with people who wanted to make that story. Right? He could just executive produce and let some Black people make that story. Like, let Black people make that story. Like you yep. could use your influence and have black people tell that story. There have been so many black people I have known over the years who have wanted to tell Westerns, who've wanted to tell it from that 25%. So as somebody who loves Westerns, but I, I want to see... I, I want to see more Black Westerns. And we haven't had enough. We have not had nearly enough. I can only think of one, which is Jordan Peele's Nope. Uh, no, you can go, you can, oh, no, no, no. There there have been uh, other Black uh, Westerns. Um, why am I drawing a blank? Uh, yes. Over the years, yes. Oh, but I'm uh, thinking yes, recent on, on that budget level yes. as well. Which yes, is, and I want to tell mm-hmm. more of them. You know, and and the yes, fact is, and there should be. They did well. It's not like these movies didn't do well. Why are we not? Anyway, we know why, right? Because the idea of the mm. the white cowboy um, versus the bad quote unquote uh, Indians and so forth and so on. Oh, and that was mm. the other thing that Taylor Sher- Sheridan said in that article. And he was like, yeah, basically he had to move out of LA to find culture. Excuse the fuck out of black <laughs> Mexican <laughs> indigenous mm. people in the state of California. Like what? Like you had to move out of Los Angeles. You couldn't just go down to Lamar Park and get some history, or you couldn't just go to the Autry Museum, which is where I learned about the Vesquetos that they date back as far as 1680, maybe even further back. Like it's the Gene Autry Museum. It's in Griffith Park. Like he was living in West Hollywood. You couldn't have driven 20, 25 minutes. Mm. It's anyway. true. And culture is wherever. You, culture is everywhere. Always. So it's just a matter of whether or not you're making the effort to find it. <laughs> People often say that Hollywood is a business and that the bottom line is their priority. However, there is academic evidence that diverse leads and diverse representation increases viewership and thus revenue. So we really want to talk about some of these financials because Hollywood is leaving $10 billion on the table from Black inequity. Disposable income for working age people with disabilities is nearly half a trillion dollars, so $500 billion, which is about the same as Black Americans altogether. Disabled community is pretty desperate for more representation of disability, visible or invisible, uh, on screen. So the LGBTQI community has a buying power of $830 billion, and the overall income of same-sex couples is generally higher than opposite-sex couples. As people are aging, 
women in particular are becoming more powerful financially and the older demographic is really overlooked. And if you think about the successes of Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin, really should go to show that there's lots more to be gained here. And the vast majority of shows with women over 60 at the center are white. And there's also an article that basically outlines that a Hollywood insider is pretty sure that ageism is currently worse than ever. Those were a lot of stats. Uh, there's a lot of money left on the table. This is where we are. Hollywood's a business and they say that, you know, the bottom line is their main priority. Yet we know that so much money is left unspent because we don't see proper representation. So let's go back to some of these. That $10 billion is a year. That a year. A year. That's that right. $10 billion that, they, that the industry leaves on the table regarding Black content is yearly. Uh, the study regarding the disabled community, um, it also says that 92% of the American public view a, um, uh, a company uh, more favorably when it has people with disabilities in the ad. Well, if you consider the fact that if we all live long enough, we'll all have a disability, right? So 25% of the American public have a visible or invisible disability. And if we all live long enough, we will all have a disability. So that makes sense, right? Um, (laughs) So when you look at these figures, it's like, okay, so wouldn't any... CEO, CFO, COO, some C-suite people figure out that the more diverse their content is, the more money they're going to make? Hmm. And I wonder why they don't. Oh, yeah. White trumps green. I said, I said it. I said it. And when I say white trumps green, I really mean the white supremacist system, right? White, male. Um, uh, and because of that being male, hence why you don't see more, uh, women, uh, over a certain age, I think it's 45, 40, 45, uh, in leads mm. because it's all for the white male gaze. Though we women over a certain age, we got more disposable income. Like, so none of this yes. actually makes financial sense. So when I hear people, because the argument that I constantly heard, that I have heard for my entire career is that, well, if it makes money, so all the stats now prove more diverse something is, more money it makes. Why are we seeing the same thing over and over again? Why are we hashing out the same thing over and over again? And though we see people who are upset over like the Little Mermaid being black or um, think remakes that have more diversity uh, within them. Oh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> so those types of people are very loud, right? It doesn't actually mean that that's really the way that financially it works, which is why you have to look at statistics and statistics within the context of past, present, and future. So we know it makes money. So I got a question. Why do all these white men still have their motherfucking jobs? But if you work at a company 
and you leave money on the table and some deal that you are making, I don't care what industry you were in, you don't have a tendency to keep your job. So why do these people keep their jobs? And I see people talking about, you know, DEI and diversity and so forth and so on. So in the state of California, and I'm just going to repeat this, state of California, when a company is run by a woman of color, profits go up by as much as 30%. And also women of color, no, I did not say white women, I'm specifically saying women of color, tend to actually not need a diversity department. Why? Because we already hire the way the world looks. So with those stats, why aren't more women of color running companies? Or film sets, for that matter. Because let's go into hiring directors and how much they're slacking on that front too, right? Because we can't really talk about representation on screen without at least also touching on the underrepresentation of women of color directors and women directors in general, right? So you- So give me the stats. I'm, I'm going to give stats. you the stats. No. Yes, here they come. So USC Annenberg, they did another study um, specifically about women directors. They also, and this is a problem that we often run into is that when they do these gender studies, usually they do not separate women of color from the women group. And here they did. So listen, across 1600 films between 2007 and 20, uh, 2022, hiring of directors went way up in 2020 after, um, all of the Me Too's, all of the, you know, Oscar So White in 2015, all of that. Then the pandemic happened, Black Lives Matter happened, and it went all the way down in 2022 back to um, pre-pandemic levels, which was very interesting to see. And I'm curious as to why. They also said that, and I quote, Hollywood's image of a woman director is white. So Across 1,600 films, 70, 73 are female directors, but of those, 57 are white, and only 16 are of underrepresented racial and ethnic groups. That's interesting. Yeah, pre-pandemic. It's, it's the backlash. There's, and I, I constantly yep. say this, there is always a backlash. Did I not just talk about Happy Days? Laverne and Shirley. I mean, I could throw on Mork and Mindy. There is always, historically, a backlash. Jim Crow laws are a backlash to the end of slavery. But remember the fact that the um, Black congressmen who were elected and then they had to impose Jim Crow laws to get them out of Congress. Like, there's always a backlash. And now we are we are seeing it, but we also hear it, right? The article that came out about uh, uh, Gina and the Woman King and the actor, the voting man, who mm. hadn't seen the movie, called her that woman. Direct- like, but there's always a backlash. And the fact is, and this is why, I, again, back to that DEI, why I call backlash, because any department that wasn't ready for it doesn't understand history. And I don't think anybody was ready for it. Nobody was ready for it. We were ready for it at Women of Color Unite, but nobody right. else, like we were, we were talking to companies and trying to sound the alarm. 
about these are the things that need to be in place. Mm. This is what needs to happen because we understood history and nobody would listen. And now we are back to pre-pandemic levels. D, I wasn't ready for it. Time's up fucking imploded. I don't know if people understand just how toxic it still is in these Hollywood streets. Like, I I don't think people actually comprehend it to the point because you may see a few more people on screen. You're like, things have gotten better. But then you look at the stats of who's directing, who's greenlighting, who's in the room, who are the writers, who are the showrunners, how much are they getting paid? Are they able to move up? When you look at it within the context of the whole, this is all about holding on, white people Mm. holding on to power, white men holding on to power. That's what it's about. And it's about their board of directors and and those people allowing them because they're leaving this fucking money on the table. Like, I would just walk in with an entire diagram and be like, all righty, why? Here are the stats. Why? Why Mm. don't we have more things with people with disabilities? Why don't we have more Black things? Why don't we have more Latinx things? Why don't we have more Indigenous things? Like, here's, here's what it looks like. Here's how much money we can make. Why are we not making that goddamn money? You know, and it's very interesting because within these reports that I was reading um, when I was uh, putting this episode together, they kept applauding Netflix, right? And we don't really love Netflix necessarily because of how they treat people of color um, behind the scenes. But I think that if you look at those numbers that I just uh, read from, you know, women directors, it kind of feels right now as if we're in sort of a heyday of diverse content. But if we take those numbers, because the content we're seeing now, a lot of that is content that was shot during that time where there were a lot more women, women of color directors working. Do you think that maybe those numbers and the way that they're going down is going to be like a harbinger of this type of content going back down again as well? Yes. Right. And though, no, we're not, like I'm not a huge fan of Netflix. They have greenlit more content with more diverse people. Yet, we've seen this before where to get something either up and running or to get out of financial trouble or whatever that people will have more diverse content. And then when they get Mm. to where they want to be, it all goes away. We can look at uh, what happened when Fox originally came around or CW or WB, uh, blah, 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 blah. Right? And they all, a lot of them, UPN, like they all started off with black shows. And then when they got their numbers up to where they wanted to be, what happened to those black shows? So again, going back and looking at History, even recent history, will tell us the story and how we have to continue to advocate for more diverse content. 
right? Like we can't fall asleep at the wheel. We can't think that, oh my God, things are going to get better and they're just going to continue to get better because history has told us, recent history has told us that, oh, when you let your foot off the gas pedal, look what happens. Mm. So that's why I like, I'm never, I'm never going to let my, my boot off the neck of Hollywood. I'm just not. And then when you take into consideration what Akosawa says about the fact that I'll never be able to make up for the debt, why take your foot off? Why take your boot off their neck? Why? Like, I don't, I don't understand why we ever let up. Why we ever think, well, now they're just going to do the right thing. They won't. When are, when are they just going to do the right thing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, and, and I think that a lot of it, I, I, I will tell you what I have seen because it sounds so dire, but it's what we talked about last week with DEI and that's people taking personal responsibility, like the people who have yeah. joined in with start with eight. So I recently, like, you know, I I do actually work sometimes in this industry. So uh, Nikki Freeman um, hired me as her production manager to do Pride Never Stops for Hulu, the commercial, the the spot for them. Um, But the people actually got the contract, shout out to Alias Films, uh, are white guys. So the first thing they did was they hired Mickey, biracial black woman, uh, as their producer. Nikki hired me. I made sure the entire hair, hair and makeup department, entire hair and makeup department, all black women. Because when they hired the the main talent for it, four people, three black women. And I saw their pictures and I was like, okay, one has naturally curly hair, one has dreads, one has braids. That's what happens when you get your production manager is a black woman. It's like, I'm going to make sure my talent feels comfortable. It's, it's our brand, right? We don't leave a marginalized group behind. But I really appreciate mm-hmm. That's what- um, Alias Films' uh Sean and Adam, who I work directly with, um, for making sure that everyone working on it, that intersectional representation matters. And so that's the personal responsibility, right? That's why I can say to somebody like a Taylor Sheridan regarding like the Bass Reese story, like, why didn't you just Hire all, there's so many black people who've been trying to tell this story for so long. Why didn't you just throw your power behind them? Why did it have to be you? And do you actually think that you are the best person <laughs> for this? Oh, and quick thing. Also, I said Vescaros, it's that it's without the S. It's V-A-Q-U-E-R-O-S. So anyway, just making a correction there. Because I work with white people, including white men who do that, who use their power, who make sure that the stories that they're telling, no matter how small, 
are being told by that community. So that's the personal responsibility. And the reason we do what we do is because there are people out there who do take their personal responsibility, they take that to heart. It's the companies. It's the system. Yeah. And I, in terms of like what a, you know, an individual can do, and we've talked about this very often, it's that thing of giving something up. And people are very uncomfortable with giving up their power, maybe money. But that is another thing. These people made an, an, a sincere effort to hire appropriately. But it also meant that they had to give up certain things, which means maybe hiring their friends. And they couldn't, you know, uh, because so much of Hollywood runs on favors, right? It's that thing where you have to make that effort to hire the people that maybe you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. So people have to give something up. And so another reason why I think that we're not really seeing a real increase in... Uh, in the, in the numbers of representation overall, I think that people are white folks in power in these positions. They're uncomfortable. They're afraid of dealing with these cultures that they're very touchy about. Um, if we look, for instance, at the backlash that um, they've ha- like Bud Light has had over their you know their their work with Dylan Mulvaney. Or how incredibly the whole situation with the Dodgers and the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence backfired when they tried to kind of keep both sides happy. I don't think they can keep both sides happy. It's more a matter of doing the right thing, Mm -hmm. which is don't spread hate. Don't be, don't, don't contribute to harm, right? So- here's what I'm going to say, because, um, I have had these discussions. Like people are like, you know, the stock for Bud Light went down. Yeah. But it went back up. The stock for Mm. this went down. Yeah. But it went back up. Like within the total, it doesn't actually matter that much. And here's why real organizing tends to come from those most marginalized and being able to stick to it and stick with it. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things we see. I also think, because when we're talking about organizing again, like it has, it, it has to be sustainable, right? Not that you don't have things like the Proud Boys and the KKK and Moms for Liberty. Yeah. I put them in the same category. Mm. Um, because I do think of them as a hate group. It's not that they don't necessarily organize. The thing with marginalized people is that we're fighting for our lives. Their actual lives really aren't going to change. Like Mm -hmm. their income isn't going to change. Their health plan isn't going to change. How much they die in childbirth. None of those things are actually going to change. So they're fighting for a quote unquote 
way of life, we're fighting for our lives. And that's why we've had change. There's a backlash, but we always get past that backlash because there is a distinct difference between fighting for your life and fighting for a way of life. And that's, that's the hope. That's, that's the thing that keeps us going. Is that we're knowing, like, I don't have a choice. I'm fighting for my life here. And if you don't think representation is king and queen, they go hand in hand. Right? Like, that's why I constantly come back to what Akosawa says, which is it'll never be able to make up to for the damage. And let us not forget, erasure is actual violence. And how many times have we been erased mm. out of our own stories? I mean, mm. Richard Dreyfus talking about playing Othello. Shut the fuck up. Because how many people have actually been black or brown or indigenous played by white people? Like they have changed that shit. That 9-11 movie that Oliver Stone did that starred Nicolas Cage, that actual character that it's based on was a black man. I didn't even know that. Yes. A lot of people don't That's know crazy. that. Like they change us in an instant and erase us. And that is the violence that is done. Wow. Right. And then when you're mm -hmm. talking about stuff like, oh, the little mermaid, and then you actually start reading and realize that stories from the sea, like th those stories are qu quite African. Sit your ass down. There's so many stories and myths that actually come from African mythology that white people have taken and made their own. All of this matters because erasure is violence. The death threats that this young black woman who just happened to play a mermaid have gotten because of the fact that we have erased myth African mythology. And let's face it, Africa's an entire fucking continent, right? But various parts of African mythology in place of white mythology or European mythology so people don't even fucking mm -hmm. know. So they're talking to, like they're getting mad. They're making death threats. And they're talking out of their ass. Because they don't actually know. And for that, we have, you know, the daughters of the Confederacy to blame. <laughs> Which is what our text, American textbooks are based on. But even, yes. like, I'm even talking about that. Yes. And Europe has still stole, like, you know, like, you know, so many of their economies are actually based on the uh, uh, raw materials of various African nations. That their own people don't, their own goddamn countries don't even know. So why would they know mm -hmm. that the people over there have actually taken mythology that comes from various parts of Africa and made their own? And now, like, it just, it goes, it goes on and on. But the difference is we're fighting for our lives. They're just fighting for a way of life that never really existed in the first damn place. It was built on lies. Yeah, no, exactly right. I mean, and you just very succinctly exactly traced back, you know, how incredibly deeply this 
culture, not just the industry, but generally, I think the culture is steeped in the systemic racism and benefiting off of all of these marginalized people. That just reminded me of Michael Harriet on Twitter, his takedown of Nikki Haley, uh, who's running for uh, Republican, uh, running for the nomination, who was the Republican governor of South Carolina, and how her father, how they benefited from the Civil Rights Movement, the Immigration Act, how her daddy couldn't get a job at a white university and ended up working at an HBCU. So all of this shit that she's talking about, like, they raised me to blah, 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 blah. And I was raised blah, 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 blah. Except the only reason you were overhearing, like, your, your daddy was saved by Black people. Like, his takedown of her was because facts matter, mm. right? Like, his takedown of her was fucking brilliant. Like you can sit there. She's like, and Obama, he was so divisive and race, 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 except your daddy couldn't get a fucking job. Mm. The reason that your family could immigrate to this country was on the backs of black people. And then when you got here, white people were like, yeah, nah, uh-uh, mm-mm, mm You can't work at our university and worked in an HBCU. And you're going to have that shit come out of your mouth? And then, of course, is all the fact that even while she was governor of South Carolina, all the money that that they got in for infrastructure from blue states. Right. Right. But you're going to because these are just talking points because none of it is real. Right. It's Mm. all a myth. That's it. And it's all a myth. All of it. And that's the thing. Also, I think that so much of what we see in terms of what Hollywood is doing, politics as well as all of these places and, and what they're trying to do, it's it's bandages. It's bandages for a much larger problem. It's a lot of, you know, we're talking the good talk, quote unquote. We know what to say. It's a lot of spin. But and and that's what we're seeing with Hollywood right now. It's performative. It's mm-hmm. it's there is no real change, and the louder the, the louder people keep saying that things are changing. I think they're honestly in a little bit of a state of self delusion and deluding each other <laughs> because things are. In the scope of history, the civil rights movement was, what now, 60 years ago? Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, cultural paradigms don't happen uh, with... A, it, cultural paradigms need at least 100 years to fully shelter in a years. culture. That. And that... If, if you consider that it's only been 100 years that women are allowed to vote, we're now seeing, you know, uh, honestly, they're trying to backtrack even that. But, you know, that that's become sort of more accepted. But we're not there yet in terms of true inclusion. It, it's just not even culturally, historically, sociologically possible. We're nowhere there yet. 
and we need to keep going. I knew you were going to say that. Because uh, that was something that my mother used to mm-hmm. tell me. That, that was Your mom and I would have been friends, I think. <laughs> you guys would have been great friends. Um, that's something that she would tell me. And so that idea of keep your eyes on the prize mm. is understanding where you fall within that timeline, where you fall within history and what your job is. That's why she raised me with that. I with constantly, you have one job. One job as a human being on this planet that's to make the world a better place, but for the next generation, and by doing it, you make it a better place now. Like that, from the time I was born, like that, because of understanding where within this hundred years, mm-hmm. right? So when we're talking about the end of slavery, we're really only talking about sixty years because Jim Crow laws. Yep. We we got another forty to go, like at least. Yeah. So it's really understanding that. Yeah, and then when you talk about like the women's right to vote, yeah, but not black women, right? Mm-hmm. So we're 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 talking about that, and whenever like, and I've said this before, because it really just irritates, it irks the fuck out of me when I hear. But we weren't allowed to have a credit card until the seventies. We weren't allowed to have a credit card. Yeah, but bitch, but you own slaves, so shut up, sit down, mm. like. Mm. Like I understand it within, but again, context, context is everything. One of the other things that Akosa and I talk about is, and I can't wait for everybody to meet her um, and to have her on on the podcast, which will be soon, uh, is the fact that, yeah, but the system's going to die. Like the system is all, like these systems were never sustainable. It doesn't matter that something lasted 200 years, 300 years, 400 years. Within history, all of history, these systems are not sustainable. They may not collapse in our time or in our generation or even the next, but eventually they collapse. It's understanding where you are as far as pushing that collapse forward. As far as making sure when the backlash happens to keep calling it out, to understand where you are within that history and honestly what your job is within the history. Like I I said before, for me, I don't give a fuck about anybody's opinion except my ancestors, right? My family, my ancestors, that's who I give a fuck about. So as long as I continue that thing that my mom said from the time I was born that I can spot out at any given moment, at any given time, as long as I constantly do that and understand there's always going to be a backlash, Mm. be ready for that backlash, Mm. be ready for that backlash, understand how you have to take incremental steps to get past that backlash, how, what you have to do and, and always Stick to the stats and context, because that's everything. Because you never know what's going on in the hearts and minds. I'm not only just white people, but people. Mm. I'm saying, but people, because we know misogynoir. We understand, you know, white women being the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action and yet being the biggest opponents of it. But we understand where we are mm. within that. So that we understand how to combat it. So we understand how to fight it. And really, it's just 
stats and context. Like that, that's everything. And so that's why I don't deal in feelings. And then there's the other really personal reason why I don't deal in feelings. It's because this is a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot to sit here and go and look at the stats. It's it's a lot to to call people out. Like it mm-hmm. actually takes a toll mm-hmm. on us, on the people running Women of Color Unite, but but also all the other Black women mm. running nonprofits and doing this work across multiple fields. All other women of color doing this work against multiple fields. And Black black and brown men doing this work across multiple fields. Like it takes its toll. So when I deal with stats, I actually, when I say fuck my feelings, it's so that I can do this work. And yet, separate that from the wear and tear that it does on me physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. You beautifully just uh, bookended um, our conversation. And I just wanted to very quickly go into some more kind of practical advice for people, because, you know, it's not just the people in the trenches like you and me with woke you and all of the people working in the you know DEI spaces the nonprofits etc but also the filmmakers who are actually you know going through this every day and it is hard work and it is painful and scary a lot of the time to keep holding people accountable and call them out and push back on hiring and especially if you're in a position of power to influence casting in some way you have to keep going um i i think we owe it to ourselves we owe it to everyone i think for studios and companies they need to hire more diversely if there are execs like you mentioned who you know like these producers who are in a, a position of power and want to take that personal responsibility of, you know, putting people in like more diverse people in positions where they can help green light content um, that is more diverse. And those people also need to be the ones that are not yes people, because that's another thing, unfortunately, that we do see a lot of. And then for casting directors, and this is, we'll link, to this in the show notes as well. During the Black Lives Matter movement, we worked with a couple of people from the CSA and we put together a non-white paper to help casting directors to cast more diversely. And also, and this was really fun actually, Cheryl, I met my casting director, Mike Page, the other day, who was actually on this committee uh, with us on with the CSA and he Uh, was talking about how whenever he encounters studio executives or other filmmakers who are like, oh, this this should be a white guy in his 50s. And then he'll be like, well, here's a couple of other options of, you know, a Latino or, you know, a black guy or whatever. And then casting directors have real power in what the this landscape looks like and so i think that casting directors also have a very very real responsibility and also power in helping steer what this looks like and that again it's scary and it may you know may may be hard but you have to have those conversations 
and yeah, and I already said it again, and, and white folks in general just need to give give something up. Whether it's power, whether it's financial, you know, that's it. Time. 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 Like there, there's been a whole lot of discussions on LinkedIn, uh, mentorship, because we have our mentorship program, uh, versus sponsorship. Start With Eight is a mentorship program. But I have also realized it has become very much a sponsorship program. Uh, for those who connect really well with, I mean, the people have gotten their WGA cards. <laughs> That's a hell of sponsorship. Uh, hiring people, um, uh, advocating for them. Like it has actually, it's not just a mentorship program. Um, the difference is we don't specifically say to people, you have to sponsor somebody. We let that come about naturally. But the fact that it has, without us doing anything, um, tells me something about just people meeting and realizing that they have biases Mm. and wanting to do better Mm. and that personal responsibility. And so there are people who do understand that they do have a leg up, that they were born with a leg up. Yep. Um, who are actively giving something up. Yep. Time, money, resources, connections, whatever it is. And that's what needs to happen because they did get a leg up. They were born with a leg up. They didn't have to do shit for that leg up. Let us not be mistaken. All of that privilege, that, that power of whiteness was built on the backs of enslaved Africans and Native Americans. So that is what we have to do. We do that work by the white papers that have written, the non-white papers that have written, the woke you seal. So the woke you seal is for productions that hire 20% women of color above and below the line. Now, the reason we stuck to 20% is because that's the way the world looks. So no, it is not a quota. We just saying, just hire the way the world looks. We got the JTC list. There are multiple lists out there to connect people with more diverse people above and below the line. You know, there are people out there doing the work like uh, regarding those with disabilities, like respectability. But there are people who are, you know, out there and they are doing the work. Yes. I would say sharing is caring and generosity has never looked ugly on anyone. Look, it never feels bad to help somebody. Right? Like it feels good. And don't just do it, it feels for that. Good to give some shit oh out. Oh my gosh. Okay. Anyway. No, no. <laughs> but <laughs> but it does. It feels good to give some to to give some shit up mm. to to begin to use your power, you know, use it for good. Lastly, you know, when we talk about all these stats, and I think for a lot of people, it's like, God damn, that's depressing. When we did start with eight and we asked people, what is it that they got most? And without prompt, meaning that we just left it blank, 75% said hope. So when people say, why do you do what you do? Oh, man. Every time I say it, like, I'm I'm tearing up. Yo, I'm a badass. I don't tear up. Uh, but it's mm. hope. 
So all of those people who want to do something, uh, there are so many organizations out there that you can join, you can give some shit up, that you can mentor and you can sponsor, uh, because we've actually proven statistically that that does actually matter and it matters within people's lives and you can change people's lives. And as our members watch other people's lives change because of it, it gives them hope. And that's why we do what we do. Ah, Cheryl, you're always making me cry. That was beautifully said. Thank you. And uh, I think on this episode, we've made a pretty good case for, you know, how we do need more diversity, how much money is being left on the table. As we always say at Woke You, uh, it is time for Hollywood to do three things. As easy, hire, fun, distribute. It's all you got to do for marginalized people. Because remember, we weren't born marginalized. You actually pushed us to the margins. And now you got to make up for some shit. Mm. Mm. I said what I said. Uh, and it will make the world a better place in the end. That's it. So uh, we're continuing this conversation in our hot tea segment, which is available for our premium subscribers. We'll be talking about some of our own experiences, pitching and making content with marginalized people at the center. Like when one of our scripts got the note that it was too diverse. Yeah, apparently that's a thing. So if you want to join us for that and get access to the video versions of this podcast so you can see our beautiful faces, our premium subscription is just $2.99 a month and you can subscribe on Spotify and you can find the link in the show notes. Either way, that's it for this episode. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, We will see you in the next episode. As a premium subscriber, you get access to our hot tea premium segment as well as the video version of this podcast. You can find the Spotify subscription link in the show notes. And if you're listening through the Spotify app, be sure to cast your vote on the poll and leave a comment or question in the Q&A. The Women of Color Night podcast is produced by Nwabata Nani and edited by Lauren Bonet. The music is by Oya oh yeah, featuring Nayuta. Subscribe to the Women of Color Unite podcast to never miss an episode. If you want to submit questions or responses to this episode, either written or a voice note, you can send them to podcast at wokeunite.com. Find the show notes and transcripts for this podcast on our website, wokeunite.org, where you can also learn more about Women of Color Unite and sign up to become a member for free if you haven't yet, or sign up for our monthly newsletter. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation. Donations are what enable us to create amazing programs like our hashtag StarWithEight career development program. If you're on social media, you can follow the podcast at WOCUPodcast, and you can follow Women of Color Unite at WOCUnite.org, follow Manon, myself, at Manon the Reaper, and Cheryl at Cheryl underscore CLBP. Please stay tuned and join us for the next episode of the Women of Color Unite podcast. Because we telling it like it is. We need rebels and troublemakers to stand out. Marginalized with voices making us so proud. But identity in the industry. We all shout. So many women empowered making their own route. Racism. Uncovered. They get together to form a force to prove the one that ain't gotta have a child to be seen as a mother. I'm saying, all power to the women of color. Yeah. It's just a salute to Cheryl Bedford.
leading activists in the community. She's bridging the gap and bringing all women together to fight for real inclusion amongst all the diversities. Keep going.